John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 19. Entry 508.GN2716, Certificate Number 26505. Furries. This is going back quite a ways. Yeah, take it all the way back. But listener, a listener named Kurt, uh, knowing that we had talked about furries in the past, as well as uh, we occasionally talk about people walking across large geographical areas. What? For some really? reason. Usually it's you huh. talking about, oh yeah, you. Or, or it's often you talking about me. <laughs> Sometimes it's me talking about you. Uh, he wondered if we had seen the news from this spring about Bear Sun. Mm-hmm. Bear Sun appears to be the persona of one Jesse Larios, mm-hmm. a 33-year-old Californian who works in health insurance. Bearson. Who completed a marathon dressed as a giant-headed teddy bear named Bearson. A, a running marathon? Yes. Okay. And since then, he has decided to walk from Los Angeles to San Francisco in costume as Bearson. I mean, it's a manageable walk. I can't attest to how... Difficult it's going to be in a bear suit. I think more difficult. He started in Little Tokyo, that seems appropriate, on in San Francisco, not the LA one, on April 12th. And he thought he could do it in a week, but now it's going to, it seems like it ended up taking a little more than that. Yeah. Um, Is he walking on the 101? I hope he's not walking on the shoulder of I-5. It's not I-5. It's got to be the 101. (laughs) Or even the shoulder of 101 would not be that fun. His initial goal was to walk between 30 to 50 miles a day, which seems very, very optimistic. Nope, nope, nope. not going to happen. He is a cheerful bear. Now, you're not going to walk 30 miles a day in a bear suit. I'm just going to tell you that now, let alone 50. I don't think I could walk 50 miles a day out of a bear suit. 50 miles a day is a gnarly, gnarly, gnarly pace to walk. I mean, there are people that run 100 miles in 24 hours, but then they don't walk for another month. He's, um, as you can imagine, he's attracted a lot of attention. He's, you know, his, his bear son persona has a giant bean-shaped head, and he's not staying in hotels. He's just camping out on the side of the road, oh, boy. eating gas station food. Oh, wait, he's carrying a backpack with a tent and a... Uh, no, I don't think he is. He's just sleeping when I say, in his When bear I say suit. camping, I mean <laughs> lying wherever he falls. Come on. I, I estimate that he can walk 12 miles a day. Uh, I don't see any news about, I see lots of people, news about the, um, you know, the people who have, you know, he, he attracts a lot of curiosity on his journey. People will want a picture with him. They'll want to wish him good luck. He a, has a couple, to smell so bad. Yes. And worse since he was doing the walk. At one point, I guess uh, a few sheriffs, a few law enforcement Officials have checked up on him because people were calling in concerned about the giant bear man. Um, they wanted to make sure that he was hydrated, that he was uh, not doing this under duress, although I'm not sure how that would work. Hmm. W- would you like to blackmail your enemies? Into, yeah. into Listen, w- I'm going to kill your wife and kids if you don't walk from San Francisco to L.A. in a bear suit. <laughs> Lol. Why aren't gangsters more creative? I would do it if somebody told me that. Yeah. I don't. I, I mean, it's a, it's a nice walk, and I like my wife and kids. Sure, and you love being in a bear suit. What is your fursona? Did we talk about that? We must have, although I don't know. Ferret? Uh, Rabbit. Jellyfish. Jellyfish. I don't know. I I think you don't want to pick a mammal. Oh, weird. Okay. 
Why? Because everyone's picking a mammal. Oh, it's I cuddly. See. Sure, 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 sure. You want to pick something. You want to look like thorny? you thought about it, and I'm a salmon. <laughs> salmon. <laughs> Maybe that's why he was walking up to walking up to San Francisco to spawn. That's wonderful, a salmon. Entry five four eight JM zero three zero four. Certificate number three eight six four six. The Great Tea Race. This clipper ship race happened at the very end of the golden age of clipper ships, right before the Suez Canal opened, thereby ending the era of long sea voyages around the Cape of Good... No. Yes, Cape of Good Hope. Yes. And since we've recorded that episode, of course, the Suez Canal has been in the news again when it was... Plugged. All stopped up. Right. For most of a week. Um, and what are you saying? The clipper ships made a... Uh, like a, a reappearance in global shipping? Well, they did. Were you following the news? Were, you know, if, if you watch... Um, I stopped following the news. If you, if you wa- There's ways in which you know, ships have these transponders, so you can actually see what global shipping traffic looks like. And during that week, ships started going around Africa again, which was fantastic. But we got a note from a listener named Brian who directed us to, uh, if you want to go to the BBC, look for a video of the Mini Suez Canal. There is a course in France. There's a Port Revel training facility for different kinds of waterway um, training that has a miniature Suez Canal that mariners can use to practice navigating it in a little tiny scale tanker ship. So you drive your mini canal, your mini ship through a mini Suez Canal, and it looks like a lot of fun. Wow. They don't want a repeat of the uh, the incident with the whatever it was called. So this has all the steps you would need to go through. You know, it's in the French countryside, but there's little fake signs noting what parts of the Suez Canal these are. It's like the little of. it's like the little uh, like little railroads that you get to drive through the forest. It is. What what do I Google to see this? Um, mini Suez would probably do mini it. Mini Suez. You get on a little scale-down model of a container ship, and then they can throw steering problems or engine outages out at you and do the whole Apollo 13 there so that when things go wrong, you're not in the real Suez Canal. Oh, I love this. Entry 414.GE1107. Certificate number 29469. English as she is spoke. We got one note from a Portuguese listener. There were a lot of uh, Brazilian names in this entry. Oh boy, we really we really savaged them, didn't we? Uh, Miguel's note, and I'm probably pronouncing Miguel's name wrong, so he'll he'll write again. Yeah, uh, was I think one of the co-authors of English as she is spoke is uh, named Jose something. Or his name would be Jose in a Spanish-speaking okay. nation. How do they say it in Portuguese? Well, the J is not a... Uh, huh? It's not a huh. It's a J. Oh, Jose? Jose. 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 I think it's not a, like a... It's not as um, it's not as long a vowel as Jose? the French one. It's Jose. 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 I like Jose. Jose. Yeah, that does sound more Portuguese, doesn't it? it Jose. Does. You have to put in kind of weird Jose. nasal sounds. and je. When you hear the je, that's when you really know you're not in Spanish or Italian territory. Yeah, yeah, je. I like it. I, uh, asked, I asked Miguel what the deal is with um, my own little weirdest Portuguese oddity for me is how if words start with an initial R, you say them like an H. Are you on board with this? Like you don't oh, say, like, you're not supposed to say Recife. The Brazilian city would be Recife. Would I be John? Oh, like I'd be John. John Hodrick. Hodrick. Miguel says that in Portuguese, in Portugal Portuguese, you would actually roll the R, so it would be Rodrick. So, so things don't start with the. But in Brazil, it's become a guttural enough sound that it's closer to an H. Recife. Huh. So he couldn't really, he couldn't take any responsibility for that. In Portugal, he feels like they're doing a better job. Well, I mean, I it's I mean the 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 more you know. So you should take uh, John and I are each going to say Jose at once, and you Jose. Need to, you should go through and edit that syllable into all the places 
in the English is She Has Spoke show where we put Jose. Go ahead. Jose. Jose. There we go. Problem solved. Thank you, Miguel. Entry 1277.EZ3403. Certificate number 35844. The Tan Suit Controversy. Uh, briefly, Billy wanted to... Uh, he noted that I mistook two Republican congressmen named King. Hmm. Steve King from Iowa and Peter King from Staten Island. He said, Steve King is the white supremacist, not Peter King. Oh, and that's, that's important true. to know. That's true. Because yeah. Steve King is always the one, or was before his retirement, always yammering about how, uh, you know, how white culture is going to be replaced. That's it, Steve it, King. Yes. And that was not even, that's not even crypto white supremacy. That's actual white supremacy. And Peter King. Peter King is from Staten Island. He's, he's just a regular guy. He's a, he's a, you know, being from that part of the country, he's now by, by modern GOP standards, which is probably why he retired, a, a moderate. Yeah. Um, I think I got them confused because Twitter actually hates them both. Um, Peter King is a, is a cop supporter. Probably. He's, I think he's most famous for like really turning up the Islamophobia. Oh, I remember this After guy. 9-11. Yeah, sure, he, sure Even sure. though before he was like, I'm proud of all my mosque attending constituents. Yeah, he went to the mosque even, and then after 9-11, he became a demagogue. Yes. So I got Islamophobia and white supremacy confused. Hmm, easy to do. And I apologize to both former uh, representative kings. The more... A substantive note we got was from Stewie. Uh, we talked about how, uh, you know, I think we mentioned if, you know, how suits are kind of an equalizing force for male politicians. If, mm. if everybody wears off the rack, everybody kind of, it just becomes a, a uniform essentially. B- business people too, sure. Sure. Um, Stewie, I think, must be Cana- Canadian. Stewart must be Canadian. And he says that's often the argument used for perpetuating the, uh, black robes that judges the judiciary still wears in commonwealth countries oh which is that um you know if all barristers have to wear the same robes then it's a leveling force among you know everybody from the highest powered big city lawyer to the humblest public defender right um you know, it keeps a, a jury or even a judge from being impressed by a nice suit. By somebody's epaulets. Because they all have to wear the same standard issue robe. Except in the Supreme Court where they're now modifying their robes. That's what I was thinking. Like, yeah. do is that a thing in Commonwealth countries? You know, like Rehnquist's stri- Gilbert and Sullivan stripes and— I don't think uh, he can. I don't think they can. And Ruth Bader like. Ginsburg's lace collar. You know, the the, the uh, one of the things they say in the military is that— you don't salute the man, you salute the uniform. Does that mean you don't even make eye contact? You you, you look at his chest? Mommy. My eyes are up here, uh, private. I think you're allowed to uh, uh, to look at the man, but um, but the point is, like, it doesn't matter if you don't like the major. Hmm. You're not saluting the major. You're saluting the major. So the rank. I would have to salute Frank Burns. You would. Or another major I dislike. You would. You salute the rank, and that is what keeps the, the machine running. So, for instance— if you're a general, you can't just put extra stripes on your pants. Although MacArthur famously put extra know, stripes on his well, pants. Well, yeah, he kind of modified it as a uniform, made it made it more groovy, put a bunch of like a bullion on his hat. I guess the problem is you can't tell a jury, "Hey, just uh listen to the arguments, don't look at the at cut the, of the man's at the, gym. at the cut of his lapels." Yeah, right. Uh I wonder if as I read this, as I read this um, note, I was like, I wonder if that's used to justify the silly wigs. And at the end of his note, Stewart said, "I have heard a similar argument used to justify the wigs that are borne by barristers in the UK." I think he must be Canadian because he thinks the robes are not silly, but the wigs are. Did he add an extra "u" to the word "UK"? Because that's how you tell a Canadian. Do any of these? Words have the Canadian spelling. Does he say flavor? No. He doesn't say he learned about this in grade six. Does he say labor? Where he got good marks. Uh, does he say uh, Does he say the word maths? Do you buy this argument that uh, the Whigs are a, level, a class leveling force because you can't tell who has what really 
can afford really good hair care products, I guess. I mean, no one else uses the wigs now. Uh, you would think, unless all the wigs are just standard issue, you would think that the wigs might show more um, luxury and class distinctions than just hair. Well, but I think it is, I think that it is class leveling, but it's leveling up because it's the it judiciary. Fancy. Yeah. And so, so you are, um, you're in awe of English law. I mean, an American would be in awe of anybody saying Malud. Malud. It, it wouldn't matter uh, even what kind of British accent it was. We don't even know. We would just think, oh, it's so dreamy. They well, you know, they, I mean, the judge sits up high. That's just the most basic level of kind of, it doesn't matter who the judge is, they're all going to sit up behind that big desk. He or she's going to look down on everyone. Look down on everyone, like the law does. Exactly. Entry 810.1CH1633. Certificate number 27581. Mother Earth's Plantasia. This, I believe, is the same Billy who wanted to defend the honor of Staten Island's own Peter King. We talk about plants a lot on this show. Have you noticed that? More than you'd think. I I think we know on some level that our audience is probably botanical. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. In nature. Um, Billy, uh, having taken electronic music at Hofstra University— wanted to shout out an oft-forgotten part of the story of early electronic music, one Herb Deutsch. Do you know? Herb Have Deutsch. you heard of Herb Deutsch? I think he, I think he pronounced it Herb. <laughs> Probably. I don't know Herb Deutsch. He was a co-inventor of the Moog. Oh. Who just didn't get his name in the Herb, Moog Deutsch. Herb Deutsch got written out of the story. Why isn't it called the Moog slash Deutsch? Exactly. I mean, that often happens. There'll be a... Scientific theory where the full name is both guys, but everybody just remembers right. one of them. But uh, it actually says Moog on the box. I know. I think he came up with the keyboard. Well, that was invented a long time before Herb Deutsch. I think he came up with the keyboard on the Moog. <laughs> and I think along with Wendy Carlos, he was one of the first musicians to to perform and, and compose on it. Oh, I see. Um, but it does seem like he's been written a little bit out of the history. Well, it's like one of those things where the bass player like puts in a passing note and he's like, I kind of deserve songwriting credit on this song. And you're like, no, you don't. Your passing note doesn't, didn't add anything, not enough to get credit. Maybe Herb Deutsch was like, you know, I played some funky jams on this thing. I basically co-invented it. Well, he's got an opening here because he has has outlived uh, Bob Moog. Oh, why so, doesn't he, yeah, rewrite the history? Well, that seems to be what's going on here. He's got his ex-students writing us notes. Uh, here's an article, here's an interview with him on MoogMusic.com, oh, talking about his his work on some of the early modules. All right, well, I'm willing to consider Herb, Herb Deutsch as a We apologize for our Herb Deutsch erasure. The other thing that came up in the show is... Um, you did not have a good name for your weed store, oh, should you ever right. start one. He offers one? Uh, this was another listener named Michael, who thinks your store would uh, it would be called the Janja Joint. Oh, the Janja Joint. Janja. See, that kind of writes itself. Yeah, although if we said it in Portuguese, it would be the Janja. <laughs> That's correct. Not Hanha. <laughs> And Eric on Facebook suggested Johnny Appleweed. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's, that's pretty good, too. Okay. So you have some options for yeah. your for your next uh, career move. The Janja. Well, you know, I feel like I could call it the Janja juice and then- uh, <laughs> You're going to get sued. And then uh, have a strain called Johnny Appleweed. That's good. Yeah. Entry 145.PS11983. Certificate number 16793. The Bottle Conjurer. Uh, at some point in this show, we were both surprised that there was not a Decemberist song about this moment of British the, yeah, mu- the, the, music hall history. The Bottle Conjurer's Lament yes. about some young child that, um, that lived inside a bottle. We have a listener named Craig who wrote in the style of 
the Decemberists a song called The Bottle Conjurer's Lament and put it up on uh, on YouTube. Oh, and he, he actually, did it as a result of our episode he or did. he had done no, it already? He, he did. Oh. And he looks and it's called Man in a Bottle, parentheses, The Bottle Conjurer's Lament. That's pretty good. He actually looks and sounds a little bit like Colin, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I can turn this up. Oh, dear. He's on a mandolin of some kind. Believable so far. Let's hear if he has Colin's dulcet tones. Yes. He's kind of doing the that, that kind of fake British accent that all these bands send For a long time, I thought Colin Way had like a speech impediment. And it, no, it's just an affectation. It's just a Montana British accent. Mm-hmm. A credible Decemberist impression. Oh, and it looks like he's gonna. It looks like right as we right as we stopped it, he was about to start some. Um, Step on a Moog pedal and yeah, like a, some weird keyboard instrument was about to come on. Uh, we will. Um, We'll link to that from the Patreon page, or you can find it on YouTube. I assume it's the only hit for The Bottle Conjurer's Lament. Hmm. That's fantastic, uh, Craig. Thanks for sending that along. Yeah, well done. I, I love that our show would be uh, would you know would work as a prompt for people putting creative work out. I like that. That's actually a good idea. If you are in the middle of some creative project and you are blocked or stumped in any way, um, roll a... Hundred thousand uh, uh, sided dice. How many episodes do we have right now? Three hundred. <laughs> Roll a three hundred sided die. We have we've recorded three hundred and seventy six, although only something like three hundred and sixty are out. Well, it's interesting because there is a hundred and twenty sided die. I have one here. Oh, so you just need three of them. You need three of them. So roll three hundred and twenty sided dies, or roll one three sided die followed by an hundred twenty sided die. That's your multiplier. Oh, okay, that's where you go. Although a three sided die doesn't really exist. Uh, no, you'd have to have a four-sided die. And one of the sides would have to be either a spring that bounces or a roll again. Well, how many episodes do we have? 360. So what would be, what would, if you had a four-sided die as the multiplier, what would, what number of sides would you, you, you have to a, have? You would need a 90-sided die. Yeah, die. 90-sided die, right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then, you know, you'll, you'll have some historical, uh, aristocrat or protest or whaling disaster or something to write about. That's yeah. how Colin Malone writes all his songs. He listens to Omnibus, yeah, and then he rolls a dice. It's just, uh, it's just like uh, Oblique Strategies. Another, and I'd love to hear your song about Oblique Strategies. But you use Omnibus as a set of Oblique Strategies. It's crazy. Yeah, I like that. Could you listen to that episode, the Oblique Strategies episode, and write a, a song a, about it, yeah, or or a do prompt. a painting about yeah. it? Yeah, I think you it's kind of like Kurt Girdle prompting his yeah. or priming his equation with his own work. Entry 040.2S1412. Certificate number 44568. America's Joan of Arc. If you'll recall, this was uh, abolitionist and and suffragette speaker Anna Dickinson, Mm -hmm. who despite being largely forgotten today, knew all of the famous men and women of her day and seems to have been uh, romantically pursued by nearly all of them. Right. Uh, we, uh, a listener named Mike drew one connection that I did not know about. Uh, during a lot of the episodes, she was pursued by a newspaper editor named Whitelaw Reed. Yeah, I know Whitelaw Reed. Oh, sure. What a great name. Whitelaw yeah. Reed. Whitelaw Reed. Uh, who was one of the most prominent Americans of his day. Uh, at near the end of the entry, she stumped for Benjamin Harrison in his 1888 campaign against Grover Cleveland. When he ran for re-election in 92, um, Anna was already on the outs with the party. But what that means is she, she did not get to stump for Harrison again. And in that re-election campaign, Benjamin Harrison had dumped his vice president, Levi P. Morton, and had chosen on the ticket no less than Dickinson's former suitor, Whitelaw Reed himself. Yes. So he was running for vice president, and she would have been called on to endorse the ticket if she hadn't already been persona non grata with the 
Republicans at that point, huh. who she thought were sellouts. Uh, so it just goes to show that, I mean, that, and that was a rare humiliation for Benjamin Harrison. Not only did he lose re-election, he lost to his predecessor, Ugh. Grover Cleveland, for the only time in U.S. history in, in, until Trump runs again. <laughs> uh, but there we go. White Law Reed showing up everywhere. Maybe he needs his own... He needs his own maybe omnibus we, Maybe entry. we talk about White Law Reed. That's right. Although I do like him just as a sidekick to a much more interesting woman. That's right. a that's probably a better take on 19th century U.S. History. Maybe what will happen is he'll reappear again when you do your Benjamin Harrison episode. Maybe he'll just show up all the time. Yeah. Well, just maybe we should find as many omnibus episodes as we can that tangentially reference White Law Reed. Or we can just look for a way to shoehorn him in to every entry. Kind of like my walk across Europe. Right. Which wasn't in this entry until now. Uh, but instead of that, every time you bring that up, I'm gonna I'm just gonna start talking about White Law Reed. All right. Just to try to get us back on back on track. Back off track. It'll be like the game where you someone has to you give somebody a word and they have to work it into their spiel. Have you ever I've never played that game. We were doing it on the chase this season. Yeah. Where we, we would nice have plug. We would have the host, yeah, on ABC Sunday nights. We would have the host choose a uh, kind of an a, an odd word, and whichever one of us was in the chair had to figure out a way to say Chihuahua or parachute or something uh-huh. in the episode. I don't know if it's going to air, but uh, was it fun? Yeah, you know, it's something else to think about up there, which right. is a little distracting. Often what we found is that the person would miss the perfect chance to shoehorn and everybody watching the show would be like, that's where you say it, that's where you say onomatopoeia, and then it wouldn't happen because right. you're thinking about something else in the moment. But should we do that on the show? You know, like at the beginning of every show, you're trying to drag the show toward the word <laughs> sesquipedalian, and I'm trying to drag the show toward, toward the word isosceles. And the first one to get their word in is the winner? Yeah, we pressed that we pressed that weird buzzer thing that we got. And then it says This is Mike again. Mike for a third time. Come on. Should we change the name of the Adenda show? To to answer Mike's questions or to, to take Mike's comments? Mike Denda? I don't think Mike wrote in this month. Oh. Maybe he maybe Mike he, Denda. Maybe we um he feels bad because we ripped on his buzzer. We're changing the name back from Mike Denda it to was, something It was it was gonna be Mike Denda and then you didn't write in. Sorry, Mike. Entry 384.LV1442, certificate number 35059, drywall. Boy, did we hear from contractor uh, omnibus on this. Uh, Because they were so thrilled that we were talking about drywall? Representation. (laughs) It matters. Several, when we, we noted that it has many proprietary names like drywall or sheetrock. And people wanted to say that they saved gypsum board or whatever in their yes. little town. Colin and a few others uh, wrote in to say that the generic is GWB. Oh, what? Really? G- yeah, gypsum wallboard. So they're, they actually on job sites say, go get 10 more sheets of GWB. Yeah, I guess that's what the, the specifications will say. It'll say GWB and then a width. Oh, as it's written down. But what do they say? Yeah, I mean, saying GWB might be more syllables than gypsum wallboard. Yeah, indeed it is. It's one syllable more. Okay. It also sounds like you're a, a George Walker Bush fan. Right. If you say GWB. GW. W. Maybe they say W. Maybe that's what, maybe that was what was so confusing about American politics in the 2000s. It would be a syllable shorter if you just said W. W. So, so then it would be the same number of, of syllables as gypsum wallboard. Get me 10 sheets of three quarter inch W. One of the reasons why, I think I asked in the show why it's always those giant pieces and our contractors answered and it's the answer you'd expect, which is bigger pieces mean fewer seams. Right. So there's less mudding and, and, uh. Whatever else you have to do. Taping. Taping and mudding. There we go. Uh, and, the, of course, they are sized, in the United States at least, to be convenient sizes for typical stud spacing. Right, for the code. Yeah. So so that's why they're big. I, we got the most interesting- Did I note. not have an answer for the question, why are they big? I'm sure you did. What did um, I say? Uh, I, I was like, I don't know, because- uh, Who knows? Because anyway. Maybe you just said, that's a great question, Ken, and then you moved on. I'm not sure. I think I would have had that exact answer. But yes, let's move on. I would think so. The most interesting note we received from Kyle asking if we remember the Chinese drywall scandal of the first decade of the 21st century. And I did not remember this. Well, that sounds like an omnibus topic, if there is one. Maybe it should have been Chinese <laughs> drywall. So, you know, in the between 2001 and 2009, it's obviously a boom 
for American construction, especially in the Southeast, it's between the hurricanes and before the housing bubble collapsed. Right. So construction was going crazy. There was a drywall shortage. There was Chinese drywall being sold everywhere. And it turns out that Chinese drywall... Was made out of the crushed bones of infidels. It had... It, it was... It was a different process, or at least there were other additives in there with the gypsum, because it would off-gas hydrogen sulfide oh, and dear. a bunch of other volatile sulfurous gases. That's not when it comes to off-gassing, that's not what you want. Of all the things you want to off-gas, I would say drywall is not the drywall in your house is not one of them. Right. And of all the things you want it to be outgassing, sulfur mm. is sulfide gases is not one of them. Mm, no. If you want a rose to off-gas. Oh, I'd love that. In yeah. fact, that's what I always say. I I, I I smell something beautiful in the air like lilac or honeysuckle, and I say, honey, the lilacs are, are off-gassing. <laughs> Those chocolate chip cookies are in there just off-gassing. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. Sure. Little, 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 bits of, little bits of chocolate are, are flying out of the stove mm. into your nose. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just that it would make your house smell gross, although that was happening. It was also- That it would murder you? Well, yeah. I mean, it was causing, it was, um, it was reacting, it was corroding metals, like all the copper and wiring and stuff would turn black, but also people were starting to report health problems. Um, and of course these were houses people were already moving into and they didn't have any recourse except to literally gut the house and put in all new drywall. Um, or else you're dealing with corroding wires and also asthma and headache and sinus issues and wow it was mostly in the southeast probably due to the climate down there um florida louisiana all the big chains home depot and Lowe's had to confirm that they didn't sell any chinese drywall um and you know they, they pointed out that you could always see the sources of theirs um but there was a federal inquiry. There were a bunch of class action lawsuits. Um, there's even, according to the Wikipedia entry, radioactivity concerns because there is phosphogypsum. Oh, phosphogypsum. Present in some gypsum, which has naturally occurring trace elements of radium and uranium. Right. And so you could be not just getting asthma, but turning all your kids into Ninja Turtles, I guess. Right, right, right. Now I'm scared of drywall. Now I wish we had lath and plaster. Well, I do feel like drywall is um, is maybe more tightly regulated now as a result of this. But also, I was reading, I was reading the specs for a uh, for like a very cool Danish uh, modular shelf unit the other day. Okay, uh, and it said our least preferred kind of wall is lath and plaster. So if you're going to try and hang this this sleek Danish design modular shelf unit, um, don't have lath and plaster. You're going to have to get some drywall in there. Is that for structural reasons, or they just feel yeah. it's beneath them? Yeah, uh, no, just because you know there's it's nothing to drill into. You put it into the plaster, and then the whole thing just falls. But they do have a version of it that is um, suspended between the ceiling and floor, like a kind of you know it's a tension rod. But it's le it's less good than the ones that are screwed right into the. I'm always terrified by something nice falling off my wall. So I've used all kinds of crazy. You know, if if, if the distance is wrong for a stud, I've used all kinds of. There's those butterfly bolts that oh, open yeah. once you put them in. Yeah. And I have a I have a, a pretty nice um, movie poster from Orson Welles's Touch of Evil, like a nice three sheet of it. And I was terrified that it was going to fall off the wall and. You know, the glass would break and the glass would rip the poster, but there was no way to hang it from a stud. But I found these things called, I called them gorilla brackets or something. Have you seen these? What do they do? They're like big, sproingy, like kind of a backwards letter S that oh, comes out from those. the wall and it braces both against the front of the drywall itself and whatever's behind the studs. And it works. And well, it hasn't fallen off the wall yet. You know, up, up here in the Northwest where we live, we are all earthquake paranoid earthquake yes. prepared and i was raised to never put anything on the wall above my bed and because uh, my mom was convinced that whatever it was would fall off in an earthquake while i was sleeping before the earthquake would start i would be i would be in the arms of morpheus 
unable to rise, the framed photograph would turn into a scythe or a guillotine and behead me before I could rise. She's not wrong. So I've never put anything over my bed, and often that's a real decorating problem. That's what happens to all the all the uh, all the awful Playboy mansion types with mirrors above their bed. Oh, they all are. They all die in earthquakes. Yeah, shards right. of shards of their own perversity impale them. <laughs> we should start working on a script immediately. Entry two one eight dot one C one 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 zero. Certificate number one six one seven. Nine. Cholitas. Just as an aside, I'm not sure. Oh, we, I think it's because we were mentioning Lucha Libre masks. We talked yeah. about the uh, Fat Albert sidekick who wears, for some reason, wears a stocking cap over his whole face, but somehow his eyes and mouth are visible through oh, it. Oh, we called him Mushmouth. We called him Mushmouth, and that is not correct. Although I think it's a common mistake. Mushmouth is the one with the red knit hat. Oh sure, and kind of, and who's the one? kind of dumb looking. The hat over his eyes. That's dumb Donald. Oh, dumb Donald. Mushmouth, Mushmouth kind of talks in, ba 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 ba, like um, right, like he's, and I think there's some, yeah, uh, but no, but fab, yeah, he, he adds the 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 b syllable, right, and I think there's, it's kind of like he's um, like Cosby, uh, although we don't listen to him anymore. He used the same voice when he did a. Novocaine voice in like a dentist routine. Oh, that, sure. that's like his numb mouth voice. I see and smell smoke. But dumb his famous line. That <laughs> classic catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> well, there when there's smoke, there was fire. It turned out. Um, but dumb Donald is the one with the pink with the hat. Oh well, well, well played, uh, commenter. Omnibus regrets the mistake. Thank you, um, Facebook. Wait. Is this guy named Donald who said this? We don't say dumb Donald anymore. We say uh, something else. You really well, should not call anyone dumb anything. Very hurtful. Although, wait a minute. What about dumb Kevin? For dumb Kevin, it's okay. He had it coming and he's been dead for like 600 years. Okay. All right. I wish I got, I don't know if I'm getting the name right of the, uh, of our corrector there. Is it Donald? Is it smart Donald? Is that why? Maybe it's Dumb Donald himself riding in. No wonder. Hey, it was me. It was me. Look for the, <laughs> look for the cartoon with me on the cover. The, the interesting note we got about this episode was from Rebecca. Who has, oh, wait, you're saying that wasn't an interesting note? No, I was, I'm compl- I was completely bored through that okay. whole thing. Right. And I think listeners were as well. What does Rebecca say? Rebecca has written us before. She has actually been to El, La Paz, Bolivia and El Alto, specifically the the outer outskirts booming suburb where the... Um, the wrestling scene is big. Um, she sent us some pictures of kind of the fun postmodern candy box architecture of El Alto. Uh-huh. She also notes that she flew out of the airport in El Alto. And you're going to have to explain this to me. The airport is at such high altitude. It's about 14,000 feet. First of all, when she got on, the flight attendants were using the oxygen masks Whoa. when they boarded. But also, she says you they can't refuel international flights can't refuel enough to make it to the U.S. Is there something about being at a does the does the fuel expand yeah, at must. a at a at low pressure? It must. So even when the tanks are full in volume, you can't fly as far. Well, but but when an airplane gets into the sky, that oh, would yeah. be true. You'd because think it would expand. It would be. It would that would be always true. So. I don't know when they fill up. Well, wait a minute. How how does that work? I'm not sure. Hang on, let me see. I I took a second to try to figure out why you would not be able to fill plane fuel tanks as full at higher altitudes, and I had nothing. But she continued the story. Because of that, you cannot get direct from Bolivia to the U.S., which means they stopped in a tiny jungle airport called Santa Cruz de la Sierra just to get enough fuel to make Miami. It turned out to be a tiny airport, only two gates long. And, you know, they had a two-hour layover, which is not what you want at such a tiny airport. They wandered, she, she and her dad wandered into the airport's single bookstore, and the first thing they saw was a copy of Mein Kampf. Air, really? Airport classic Mein Kampf uh, sitting there. So they 
they bailed on the bookstore. That's not, <laughs> it's not what a couple Jewish visitors from Miami want to see in their airport bookstore. I, I am using every, um, every... Part of the buffalo. Every, every tool at your disposal. <laughs> I'm using every internet tool at my disposal as someone who uh, knows some of the search terms to ask questions about airplanes, and I can find no commentary or explanation on to, uh, as to why it would be uh, hard to fly. Now, I understand that it's hard for departing planes. Oh, you know what it is. The thinness of the air makes it hard to get oh, the plane in the air. use more fuel on takeoff. No, I bet you what it is is they can't load up the plane uh, with with the weight of the fuel because it would keep them from clearing the altitude. That makes sense. So they can only half fuel them uh, because otherwise they'd just run into the side of the mountain. And I think I've heard that before. Interesting. That's interesting. So it's not to do with the density of the gas. You are my density. Entry 313.EZ2116. Certificate number 30932. Doggin H. Eric thinks he has a bone to pick with you here. With me? He thinks you... Did I slur the Swedes? Uh, worse, the Canadians. And, well, us- and usually that's my job. Yeah, I mean, slurring the Canadians is your job. It's, it's close to your profession. Eric heard you say that it was Quebec that drove on the left and then switched. Do you believe you said that? Uh-oh. I don't know. Um, Are you now, or have you ever been someone who said that Quebec used to drive on the um, left on a podcast? Why would they have done that? Oh, they would have done it because Quebec always wants to be super difficult. Right. So um, Quebec actually, you know, if if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Quebec would have been following the French side. The French side, which, so they would be the most likely to drive on the right of anywhere in Canada. And in fact, that's true. It was British Columbia and the Maritime Provinces, which used to drive on the left, even though other parts of Canada did not. You're kidding. The far fringe both wanted to drive on the left. Yes. When did British Columbia stop driving on the left? Did the people from Seattle come up and beat them with sticks? Oh, what it was was they came down here to see the Toronto Blue Jays play, and we ran them off the roads. It was 1920 when British Columbia switched huh. from the left to the right. So it's been 100 years. There was nobody in British Columbia a hundred years ago except trappers and... And they all had cars, apparently. Yeah. All the beaver trappers driving their Model Ts around. And, you know, and, and then shoes full of feet, of course, the, the perennial crop. Yeah, even then. Uh, a more interesting note was from Mark. Well, you keep Mark. judging these notes. Yeah, I start with the boring <laughs> one. Eric, Eric, thank you for your boring correction. Uh, same with you, mushmouth guy. <laughs> Um, but I love when we get like real firsthand testimony from some weird thing we started talking about. Uh, during the episode, we mentioned Okinawa as a random, as a very unusual case of a place switching from driving on the right to driving on the left. One of right. the few places in the world that did so in the 20th century. In modern times, even. Yeah, yeah because it was, uh, what, an American colony, essentially, after the war when the Navy and Air Force moved in. And it was not until Japan reasserted more sovereignty over Okinawa that cars switched to driving on the left. And I think I asked, well, how does that work with the base? Because we still have a ton of... You did ask that. A ton of service members there, presumably with their right-hand drive cars. And we heard from Mark, who was actually stationed there in the 90s. Yeah, Mark, tell us na- tell us more. Give us, the, give us the Kadena scoop. He says when he was there, service members, when they transferred from the U.S., could not ship their cars. And my Does that mem- happen a lot? My memory of being in Korea in the 80s was there were people who shipped cars over, although you could also get a pretty good deal on... A Kia? Uh, we got a Honda Accord, I think, via some pretty amazing military and DOD dependence offer, and it got shipped over. But what you would do in Okinawa is if a, if a service member there wanted the car, you would have to purchase one on the island. So they had a bunch of sales lots right outside the base, just like... Just like here, except they're not offering. Right, just like in Tacoma, they're not offering Camaros at twenty eight percent APR. <laughs> they are just offering super inexpensive beater cars. That you know, when he was there in the early nineties, you could get one for just over a thousand dollars, maybe. Right. 
uh, a car that he says would never have passed U.S. inspection. You could probably punch through the metal. So you would buy these beater cars. You couldn't drive them very far, but that's okay. Sure. They were, you know, they had the steering wheel on the right side. Bash them up. And then when you were going to go TDY or when you were leaving Okinawa, you would leave the car to some incoming person. You know, you would, oh, you yeah. would work out a deal like that. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like the graphics bongs we used in college. And I'm not <laughs> taking this with me. That's right. <laughs> and so he says, like many people there, he would spend the first few months of his tour walking to the passenger side of his car trying to get in, oh. then being annoyed. Womp, womp, womp. And then at the end of his tour, he would come back to the U.S. and did the same thing in his car. He would walk to the passenger side of a left-hand drive car and then be annoyed that that's actually the passenger Well, you can side. never get it right in this life, can you? Thank you for your uh, service, Mark, but more especially, the most important thing you did in the military is uh, observe uh, car buying conditions on Okinawa generally for, uh, for omnibus listeners. What's crazy, of course, is that the number one reason to join the U.S. Armed Forces as an enlisted person is to go buy a Mustang, right? It's the first thing that every person in the armed services does. Buy a Mustang, a Camaro, or a Challenger, uh, and then pay exorbitantly for it and and, uh, and drive around the town outside the base revving your engine. Unless you're stationed Unless at Kadena you're, Airport, and, Air Base. Yeah. Huh. Isn't that something? Entry 090... Dot LK1920, certificate number 44181. The back of a napkin. Uh, Justin wrote in to suggest that among the other great ideas born on the back of a napkin, I guess this is napkin adjacent, that Milton Glaser's famous I Heart New York slogan was uh, sketched on the back of an envelope while he was riding in a cab. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's napkin like. We talked about. Envelopes and cigarette packages and other mm-hmm. uh, napkin-like papers that idea havers might have on hand. The reason I wanted to mention Justin's notice because he was also the one that sent us the painting of a Luke Skywalker X-wing fighter pilot minifigure. Oh yes, which I think you still have somewhere. It's, it's a treasured, uh, treasured art piece here. It's, it's not here in the bunker anymore. It must be upstairs. It's upstairs. Uh, we, he mentioned somewhere in the note that he was from BK. And we Burger King, we well, British I think, Knights. I think that's what we said. <laughs> Burger King. He points out that this is our West Coast provincialism at work. Yeah. Anybody maybe. from his part of the world would know that saying you're from BK means Baltimore, Kentucky, Maryland. Uh, no, Brooklyn. Oh, sure, BK, Brooklyn. I see it now, right? Right, right. I'm maybe if that. I saw it written out, Do I Do the boroughs know. really need their own two-letter codes like their European license plates? I would say no. You know, he's just, it's it's from the liner notes of a... Of a Jay-Z record? Yeah, right. It's just, it's some kind of... Uh, no, I guess I say... No, I guess if I were writing someone a text, I would say B-K-L-Y, B-K-L-N, right? B-K-L... B-K-L-Y-N. Seems almost as long as Brooklyn. Yeah. You've just gotten rid of the Rue. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Get rid of the Rue, just like in the later Winnie the Pooh series. I hate that guy. Uh, yes. B-K-L-Y-N is not uncommon. You're right. But B-K... But it really doesn't save you that much time. No, but it, it kind of does. You know, If you say it out loud, it's five syllables instead of two. B-K-L-Y-N. If you would never If, you, if do you're that. writing it on a hat. It saves you some space. Also, it looks cool, B-K-L-Y-N. Whereas B-K, I don't know, there's just a, feels like... There's a Brooklyn magazine buk, 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 buk. That, whose URL is B-K-Mag. Right. So there is some... Buk. But it means they're never going to own B-K.com because that is, as you've noticed... Burger King. Burger King, yes. So Brooklyn, you're out of luck. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure if that – we should hear from futurelings that live on the East Coast. I'm not talking about live in Brooklyn, but live on the East yeah. Coast. No if, Park Slope need apply here. If someone says, I'm from BK, do you think it's Brooklyn or do you say, do you live in a Burger King? I think maybe they would write, I'm from BK, but in their head voice, they're hearing, I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn is the pronunciation of the letters – BK. I'm going to write this right now. Which means if you write the word I'm Babka, from the actual pronunciation of Babka is Babrooklyna. If somebody said, I'm from capital B, capital K, I would immediately think Bakistan? 
Yeah. Yeah. Bakbakistan. <laughs> because BK does not look like Is Brooklyn. that the place where you took your rooster? Bakbakistan? Oh, wait. That's an entry that has not yet aired. But BKLYN totally looks like Brooklyn to me. Because okay. it, there's nothing else it could be. So I, I reject this BK. Are there other two-letter things? Like, is the Bronx the BX? BN? BX. The BX is where you shop on, on Kadena Air Base. Yeah, let's see. BX. No. What's Queens? A- QS? None of these QN? places. None of these places have two letter. No, even NYC. I mean, I guess you can say NY. Yes, but that's not Manhattan. Well, that's and the that's, whole, the, that's thing. the state. That's what. That's what Brooklyn's trying to do. They're mad that New York has its own two letter appellation, and they want that to be true. They want Brooklyn to be important enough that we all care enough about it to call it a two letter thing, and it's not. It's not its own state. I bet there's iHeartBK stickers. Yeah, there are. Stealing the stealing the I heard NY thing. Some of them have the bridge on them. See, yeah. it's this it's this rise of Brooklyn business that just needs to stop. Well, Brooklyn used to be its own city. Well, I mean, yeah. if if you look at early American censuses or sensei, sensei, uh, it was as big a town as any. Yeah, it, like it was one of the top ten biggest cities in America. It would be like the biggest cities are Philadelphia, New York, Boston. You know, you'd go down, blah blah blah, right. New Orleans, Brooklyn, right. Here's who doesn't care, me. And then it got annexed. Yeah, they're just it's it's too late for you, Brooklyn. Too late. Yeah. They're making their own jam over there and they think anybody else cares. They got a basketball team now and they think they matter. Hmm. Entry 795.RO1502. Certificate number 29242. Mr. Rogers' Operas. Mr. Rogers's operas? Mr. Rogers's operas. And now I, I sound like Foster Brooks. I was very gratified that the response to this was people who knew of Mr. Rogers, but not of the operas. So yeah, that's what we wanted. I was correct that that had kind of gone down the memory hole. Um, we did have a few people, notably Bob and Kendra, try to defend the honor of Daniel Tigers's neighborhood, the follow-up show. Oh, really? Which we kind of thought was... or. I, you know, you and I had not seen it, no. but we did not think it had uh, the quiet grace of Mr. Rogers' live action work. We kind of thought it was a cash grab. And? And both these parents think it does have the same kind of uh, gentle, uh, calming effect on their children as vintage Mr. Rogers. I mean, Daniel Tiger is the softest, sweetest thing that ever lived, it's true. right? They got rid of the aggro puppets like Lady <laughs> Elaine and... Uh, who else is a d- King Friday? But wait, Daniel Tiger is, uh, it's an animated series. It's no, yes. There are no puppets. Yes. And I think, um, but these people have pointed out that it really does not have the frenetic pace of a modern animated show. Kendra notes that she was sitting in the backyard with her two-year-old son, Miles, who had just started watching a lot of Daniel Tiger. She asked him why he was being so quiet. What are you doing? He said, just sitting, breathing deeply. Oh. So by that, I, I mean, wish that, I wish I could have communicated that skill to my own child. I wish I could have that skill myself. Sitting quietly, breathing deeply. So just from that piece of anecdotum, it does seem like uh, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood might have the same soothing, borderline zen quality of Fred Rogers' original show. It's much better than having that child say, I'm just thinking of things you can buy me, Mom. (laughs) Is Is that what you usually hear? Uh, well, this program is targeted at preschool-age children. It teaches emotional intelligence, kindness, and human respect. Are you just saying this off the top of your head, or are you reading yes, the Daniel no, Tiger I, No, website? I'm just inventing it. Uh, its content follows a, a curriculum based on Fred Rogers' teaching and new research into child development. Now, you know how I feel about new research into child development. Stop it now. I hate the new math. It's out of control. Do math the old way. I am not going to visualize these numbers. Six is a six. It is not six anything. Uh, we also heard from Michael, who is from Pittsburgh. Fred mm-hmm. Rogers is stopping around. By the way, he's the one that wanted to know if you knew Captain Don Cubley from Juno, and you said you did not. I don't know Captain Don Cubley. No. Um, that's kind of a little, that's a little lower 48 chauvinism to assume that you all know each other up there. Well, uh, the thing about Alaska is, of course, that, that there are like legendary characters where everybody seems to know but there's also that problem of, um, oh, you're from Alaska. Do you know my friend John? It's like, hey, man, there are 700,000 people up there now. And he lives in Juneau, which is like not accessible by road. What's the story with Don Gubbley? Oh, uh, you're, you're not going to tell me. This is just some other comment. 
Yes. Oh. This, was just, this was just his PS. PS, please ask John. Okay, Michael, I did it. Leave me alone. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, oh, I don't know if he says he grew up in Pittsburgh. Right now, his daughter is at Carnegie Mellon. That's in Pittsburgh. And he, and he uses yins in the email, but maybe he's appropriating it um, because he looked up Pittsburgh's other product of that generation. I guess he's a little older than most Mr. Rogers viewers. Um, and his kids were too young, I guess, to watch it. He just missed it. However, one of the you know biggest names of the century for him for his generation was Andy Warhol, right. also famously a product of Pittsburgh. In fact, they were born four five months apart in Pittsburgh. What do you think? I mean, it's it's funny to imagine that because Fred Rogers did not, you know, Andy Warhol became hit the scene at a very young age, whereas Fred Rogers had kind of toiled in obscurity for decades before you and I started watching him. But Andy Warhol and Fred Rogers were grown up, were grew, grew up in Pittsburgh. They would have been in the same year of school. I wonder if they ever like went to the same elementary school. Wow. Imagine them hanging out. Yeah. Right. In a, in a chess tournament or whatever. I mean, Andy Warhol did have like the 24 hour movies that were just someone sleeping. So they were both no stranger to um, sedately paced entertainment. Although, and they both hung out with celebrities. I mean, Right. Andy's painting Mao and Marilyn and Tom Mix, and Mr. Rogers is, um, what, going to ballet class with Rosie Greer or something. Think about, um, I mean, think about them both in the 60s. I mean, where were they both in 1961? What was Fred? Fred Rogers was working in Pittsburgh television, and Andy Warhol was, was the, already painting cans. The factory, yeah. Yeah, right. Wow, how cool. So one of them, I guess the difference is one of them stayed in Pittsburgh, or at least Fred came back after he got his music degree. Hmm. Interesting. I want to, I, I kind of want to write fan fiction about young Fred Rogers, young Andy Warhol, you know, running a summer lemonade stand or car wash together or getting into hijinks. Yeah, hijinks, right? That's, that's the best fan fic. Were, I want to see this movie. They were probably shooting marbles and one of them had one of those weird little crown beanies. What if Which they, one? <laughs> let's see. Fred Rogers would be wearing the Jughead hat, and uh, and Warhol would be. I mean, I can't really see him shooting marbles either. I cannot see Andy Warhol bending down. <laughs> Maybe that's just a failure. <laughs> well, it's because after he got shot, he couldn't bend down anymore. It turns out that Captain Don Cubley went to Gonzaga, which I also did. But he didn't play rugby. But he seems like he Cubley play rugby. He seems older than me. Um, does anybody really seem older than you? Well, he, in his LinkedIn profile, uh, says here that he worked in the governor of Alaska's office as early as 1981 and older. So, um, but he's an international marketer and I don't, I don't have a lot of, um, firsthand marketing experience. Although my daughter's mother is a marketing should we, should we ask her if she knows Captain John Cub Don Cubley? Don Cubley, and, I, and it might even be Cubley, given how strange um, a K name with three vowels in it. Is there yeah, an umlaut? Could, there's not an umlaut, but my my favorite note uh, from uh, of the Fred Rogers operas episode came from friend of the podcast Neil Shirley, who. Uh, Hi, Neil. Who noted that, um, you know, Fred wrote a dozen or so of these operas and just loved them. None of them had ever been performed live until 2019. What? The, wow. The Pittsburgh Festival Opera, you know, as part of its season, it did Puccini and it did Strauss and it did Wagner, but it also performed two Fred Rogers operas back-to-back -back live for the first time ever. They'd all just been, they'd all just been uh, little PBS... Operettas. And How awesome. They were doing Windstorm in Bubble Land from 1980, back-to-back -back with Spoon Mountain, 1982. Bubble Land is my favorite of the Mr. Rogers operas. So, uh, you know, Pittsburgh is really having a Fred Rogers renaissance. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably smart. There's probably going to be Fred Rogers tourism. Uh, but the score was adapted so that, because, you know, they were sung by non 
opera professionals on TV. Right. I mean, the the John Reardon character and, and Francois Clemens, they were both opera stars, but everybody else was just local community theater actors who we love, but maybe did not have operatic voices. So when the Pittsburgh Festival Opera scored Windstorm and Bubble Land and Spoon Mountain, they... They went for the, they, the rafters. They huh? made it more melodic and challenging. Yeah. And, you know, you can't really... Betty Aberlin... Much though I love her and was kind of fixated on her as a yeah. young boy, could not really sing the Queen of the Night aria from Magic Flute, I would imagine. Yeah. I'd be, I, I would pay I would, $50 for tickets to watch her. I would love to see her try. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Entry 840.PR0415. Certificate number 29250. Going all the way back to the Noid. We don't usually go this far back in the addenda entries, but you did you hear about this, John? The Noid is back? Well, I heard about it when you texted me like a week ago and told me the Noid was back. The Noid is 35 uh, this year, which means, for, well, for one thing, it means the Noid can now run for president. <laughs> right. <laughs> Would you vote for the Noid? Um, uh, depends on who else was running. Uh, but the Noid is... Um, a Noid? Domino's is bringing him back... With the Crash Bandicoot, come on, mobile game, come on, Crash Bandicoot. This he, isn't real. Whatever you're saying, whatever you're going to say next, isn't real. He is not. You know, he has not appeared since that Yo Noid video game of 1990. Uh, but now, you say that like like I'm going to go. Oh yeah, right. The, well, we talked about it on the show. Yeah, you don't remember? Oh, I remember. Um, but of all the things you could bring the Noid back to, to do, it's really to, um, to play a Crash Bandicoot video game. Okay. Oh, I guess the Domino's line. Hit it. I guess the Domino's line, because the Noid is the villain who keeps you from getting your pizza, right? Sure, you sure. have to avoid the Noid. Right, because the Noid makes your pizza cold. And I think it's to help promote Domino's new dystopian autonomous vehicle pizza delivery. Mm. So they've got these little... Have you seen these? These little mini... Ro- have you seen these, Paul? I feel like David Letterman. <laughs> have you seen this, Paul? Yes, yes. <laughs> ha, ha, yes, Dave. Uh, Domino's has these little mini Jeep things that I guess autonomously brings you your pizza unmanned like a Mars robot. But this is a this is a fantasy, not a real thing. You, the, they don't have self-driving cars yet. Uh, no, they're, these are, I mean, I don't know to what level they're, I mean, they're testing them in a, okay. at, at a Texas. They're testing these driverless vehicles at one Texas location, but the commercials for it will use the Noid. And I guess they're hoping that the cultural memory, memory has been gone of uh, what the guy who, Took the ho- you remember the hostage crisis from the guy who thought the Noid was making him shoot people or whatever? Oh, right. Okay. Do you not remember the ending of the Noid no, story? No, I, I remember it. it. I mean, it was 2018. I mean, it, I've, I've had four kids since then. It was a guy named Kenneth Noid who took the ad right. personally. He right. thought they were talking to him. Right. And so he took over a, a Domino's at gunpoint. Um, and then... He got hungry enough that they made him pizzas, and then the hostages escaped while he ate the pizza. So, not the perfect crime, but I guess they're hoping that that was 1989. Yeah, a long time ago. 32 years have gone by. We're ready to just embrace the Noid for what he is, which I guess is a symbol of robot car delivery and crash racing Crash Bandicoot. So, has the Noid been been rehabilitated now, and the Noid is the hero of the story? No, I don't think so. I think the Noid is still the end. I haven't seen the commercial, but I think the Noid is still opposing both Crash Bandicoot and these new self-driving cars that get you a pizza so quickly and also, you know, probably run over babies. I see. Get it. Got it. Good. So the Noid is back. And we can- Tony's got him. So we should delete. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we should delete the entry from the Omnibus now that it's current again? Oh, no, I think- I think time is a flat circle, and as you know, anyone listening to the Omnibus could be listening in any order. 
the Noid will go in and out of, of fashion many times over the millennia to come? It's possible that we'll still be doing this show at a time when the resurgence of the Noid is far enough in our past, in our past, that we would do an episode on the Noid 2, the Noid Red Year. What if the Noid becomes insanely popular, permanently so, hmm. and people listen to our show and they're like, these guys missed the point entirely. They don't, yeah, what the heck? They didn't they even, even mention Crash Bandicoot. Uh, well, but they'll have access to the addenda episodes because if, if they're Patreon supporters, you're right, everything will be searchable by retinal scan and, um, and everyone will be a Patreon subscriber to Omnibus. What a utopia that will be. Wouldn't that be nice? So everyone who's listening, go to your friends and family and have them subscribe to the Patreon because it's the beginning of a process and, and it's inevitable. And it'll bring about the end of the world. It's inexorable. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 19. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the omnibus.